Trinity Presbyterian Church online. This week in worship, Pastor David continues the series on the disciples with a look at the life of John and his consistent and patient life of faith. Let's listen. I'm glad to be with you today. We are in the second week of a new series where we're studying the disciples. And every week we're going to study one disciple and look at the unique way that they walked their life of discipleship. The ways that they use their personality in their own walk with God. And and then as we look at those individual disciples, we'll ask ourselves the same question each week. How does that then affect how we walk our path of discipleship? How does their journey affect the ways that we also are seeking to be disciples today and follow Christ today? So we are going to study today the disciple John. What do we know about John? Well, for one, we know that John was a gifted writer and author. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, John wrote five of them. He wrote the Gospel of John, as well as three letters, first, second, and you guessed it, third, John. And he also wrote the last book in our Bible, the book of Revelation. Now, this is interesting to me, because if you were with us last week, you know we studied Peter. And Peter often would use his voice to share about God. Uh, If there was a crowd of a thousand people, he was comfortable speaking to that crowd. I don't think John was that person. John was more in the background, but John used the written word to proclaim the same message. So Peter, John, they had different gifts, but they used those gifts in unique ways to share the same message of God with the world. John just did that through writing. But they did have a similarity. They were both fishermen. So John was also a fisherman, and he was a disciple along with his brother, James. Now, I studied John this past week, and if I could describe who he was early on in his ministry, uh, there'd be really two words, misguided enthusiasm. I think that's who John was. John was an enthusiastic, outgoing disciple for Jesus, but his passion was not always directed in the right places. I'm going to give you two examples from Scripture that both come pretty early on in John's ministry as he's learning how to be a disciple. Here's the first one from the Gospel of Mark. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Okay, so picture this scene in your mind. John sees someone who's driving out demons. And honestly, I would think this would be a good thing. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be the less demons, the better? That's usually the motto I live by. But but this person was not one of the 12 disciples. He was not a part of the inner group. John sees him and he says, he's not one of us. And so he tells him to stop. He says, cut it out. Leave those demons where they are. You see, John had a narrow focus of his understanding of Jesus' ministry, and it included just his group, the 12 disciples. This would be like me complaining about that church down the road because they're feeding the hungry. Can you believe the nerve of them? They're not us. We are the only church that can do that. That's John's mentality that he has here. So Jesus 
has to widen his understanding of Jesus' own mission. He goes on, he says, Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I wonder if John just wanted to be a part of a really exclusive group, you know, something that only a couple of people were doing with Jesus, rather than something that anyone with the right heart can be a part of. We can act like that sometimes, can't we? You know, when we keep something that's really special to us, and we feel that, but, but we feel a need to, to keep others out of it. And somehow by keeping others out of it, that preserves that sense of specialness for ourselves. I think it's important for us to recognize this tendency within ourselves, as well as to see that Jesus is opening the door wider, as Jesus so often does. That's the first example of misguided enthusiasm. The second comes from the Gospel of Luke, and it's when Jesus and his disciples, including John, are traveling. They're on the road, and they're traveling to Jerusalem, but they need to pass through a Samaritan village. And this is what happens. It says, Jesus sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. So you may recall there is an awful history of animosity between Jews and Samaritans that go back generations. So when this town hears that Jesus is coming, they have no interest in welcoming Jesus. They have no interest in setting aside a place for Jesus to spend the night. There's going to be no hospitality here because Jesus is Jewish and Jesus is heading for Jerusalem. Now, I would guess the majority of the disciples, they were probably annoyed by that, but not surprised. They, they kind of know the lay of the land. Well, John and his brother James, they have a bit more of a strong reaction to this. It says, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Hmm. When Jesus says, love your enemies, somehow I don't think this is quite what he had in mind. This is probably why Jesus gave these brothers a nickname. He calls them the sons of thunder because they are bringing the thunder with them wherever they go. There is nothing subtle about John or his brother, James. Think about it. John is willing to kill people to simply preserve the reputation of Jesus. Misguided enthusiasm. Do you know anyone like this? You know, someone that you just want to tell, listen, I love the energy, but can you tone it down a little bit? I feel like you're, you've got a lot of passion, but you're kind of heading in the wrong direction. And if you were Jesus, after these two events, do you think you'd be about ready to kick John to the curb? To tell him, okay, we tried, but you don't have the right temperament to be a disciple. Uh, you know, we gave it a good shot, but maybe you should just step aside and let someone else learn from me and be a disciple. If I was Jesus... I think that's exactly what I would do. 
But Jesus is not like us. No, Jesus sees the potential in John and what John's life could be if his passion and his energy were molded and directed towards the purposes of God. You see, I think that Jesus recognizes that discipleship is a long, slow process, even a a lifelong process that we're all involved in. Change doesn't happen overnight. Results are never going to be instantaneous. It's a gradual, one step in front of the other kind of process. And this is true in your walk of discipleship as well. Jesus doesn't expect for you to have everything figured out right as you begin your walk of discipleship. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't expect that even when you're halfway through your walk of discipleship. No, that's not the expectation. All that's expected, no matter where you are on your walk of discipleship, is that you keep moving in one direction, and that's the direction of Jesus. Keep allowing Jesus to mold you and to form your passions and your energies towards his purpose. Now, to John's credit, he was able to take correction. He was able to learn from his mistakes, especially those early mistakes in his path of discipleship. And if you follow his story, what you'll see is that he kept growing. He kept growing closer to Christ, not allowing any momentary setback to really halt his progress. He kept learning, kept growing, and kept pursuing Christ. And eventually, because of that, John began to view himself differently because of all the time he spent with Jesus. You know how it's said that you will become who th- those whom you spend the most time with. You'll start to act more like them and, and be a bit more like them. Well, John spent the most time with Jesus. And as his discipleship journey progressed, he began to change. He began to view himself differently because of all the time that he spent in Jesus' presence. So much so that when he got ready to write his own gospel, to really share his experiences of Jesus, he did something interesting. He never talked about himself by name in his own gospel. Now, this gospel is the last one written. John was written much later than the others. So he's, at this point, had decades of understanding of who God was, decades of discipleship. And at that point, he's begun to view himself differently. In his gospel, if you read the gospel of John, you'll never see John did this or John did that. Instead, John chooses to give himself a title. And his title is the one whom Jesus loved. Here's an example. This is at the Last Supper. John is writing this. This is his experience. And he says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Now, he could have easily just said John was reclining next to Jesus. He's talking about himself there, but he didn't. Throughout the entire book, he refers to himself simply as one who is loved by Jesus. Why? What is he trying to teach us through using this term and this terminology? 
Well, I believe that John began to understand that his identity, his sense of self was rooted in one thing and one thing only, knowing that he is loved by Jesus. Towards the end of his life, nothing else mattered to him. Not how many mistakes he made, not how misguided he was at times. The only thing that mattered to him was that he was loved by Jesus. Again, we're applying this to ourselves, right? And so I hope that this is true for you as well, because our sense of self can be rooted in so many different things. It can be our job, or who we are as parents or grandparents, or as spouses. But know this, your primary identity as a disciple, the one that supersedes any other identity that you have, is this, that you are loved by Christ. This is who you are. And this is what everything else in your life is built upon. The foundation, knowing that at your deepest self, at your very inner core, you are simply loved. So you might be a grandfather, but you're a grandfather who is loved by Jesus. You might be an accountant, but you're an accountant who is loved by Jesus. The way we see ourselves matters. Think about John. John could have seen himself in his inner eye and said, I'm just a headstrong, somewhat immature disciple who keeps making mistakes. He could have beat himself up in his own mind. And how many times do we do that to ourselves in our own minds? But he didn't because of the time he spent with Jesus. Because of that time, all he saw when he looked at himself was love. Someone who is loved. Now that realization, I think, is the goal for all of us. For when we look at ourselves, hopefully that's all that we see. We see someone who is loved by Christ. But remember, discipleship doesn't happen right away. It is a step-by-step-by-step journey. And this is true for us as well. It's the truth to say, I just need to keep making progress. I just need to keep taking steps and allowing my heart and my life to be molded by God. Because eventually, this is what's going to happen. Eventually, you're going to look back on your journey and you're going to be amazed at the progress you have made. You're going to say, how am I so different now? I don't remember any big leaps of change in my life, but it's going to be because of that gradual, persistent, step-by-step progress that you commit to as a disciple. I mean, if you look back on this day, five years down the road, ten years down the road, and each day you get just a little bit closer— to understanding yourself as loved by God, when you look back, those changes are going to be extraordinary. I know this because I look at John's life. I look at all the early missteps in John's life, but then I look at where he ended up. And there's an amazing moment towards the end of his discipleship journey. And it's when Jesus is is hanging on a cross— Jesus is at his lowest moment, and in that moment, he's been largely abandoned. Almost all of his disciples have left him uh, out of fear for their own lives, because if Jesus, their leader, can be put to death, 
What do you think is going to happen to someone who follows? And so Jesus has been abandoned by his disciples, but John tells the story of who was still there, who still came to the foot of the cross. Here's what he says. He says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Yes, four women stayed by Jesus' side. Four women stood at the foot of the cross and left unstated, but what we're about to find out in the next verse is that John was there as well. Even when 11 other disciples left, 11 other disciples said, we can't do this anymore. John remained. John traveled with Jesus all the way to that point. And then Jesus does something incredible. I mean, this is the, probably the worst moment of Jesus' life. This is the moment where he's in the deepest pain physically and emotionally, but he's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about his pain. Instead, while he hangs on that cross, he sees his mother. And he's thinking, who's going to care for my mother after I'm gone? And this is what he says. So when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Do you think Jesus would have asked an immature, misguided disciple to care for his mother? No, but that's not who John was anymore. No, John grew and matured to the point that when Jesus needed him most, Jesus knew that he could trust John and say, John, I want you to take my mother into your home and and care for her the rest of her life. I mean, the same disciple who was ready to rain down fire from heaven is now taking Mary into his home. What a transformation. You see, John, he was a work in process, and so are we. And I know we know people in our lives, right? People in our lives who say, okay, you don't have it all figured out yet. You're not quite there. You're still making mistakes from time to time, but I see the potential. In fact, we are those people, aren't we? We're all works of progress. But just like John, we should seek to mature day in and day out. Maturity in faith. That truly is the goal. Now, how does John's story end? Well, John is the only one out of the 12 disciples who is able to make it into old age and die of natural causes. All the other disciples died early. They were killed. They were martyred for their faith, but not John. That's not to say that the end of John's life was easy. No, John was actually banished by Rome. He was sent into exile by the Roman government to the island of Patmos. Uh, Patmos is modern-day Greece, and this is where Rome would send criminals and, and convicts, and John had to then live in a cave as an old man, cut off from all that he loved on this island of Patmos. Now, thinking about that, I had to think as a young disciple, what would be going through John's mind? Well, he might be upset, right? Upset saying, is this God's plan for me? Is this God's purpose? 
Why is this happening? But as a mature disciple, as someone who has lived their whole life learning more and more each day from Jesus, that was not his reaction. His reaction was one of profound trust to say, I don't like these circumstances. This is not what I would choose, but I trust that Christ is with me. And I trust that no matter what's happening in my life, Christ will continue to be with me, leading me through this life. And Jesus was. Jesus was right there with John to the point that John was actually given a gift. He was given a vision, a revelation, we might call it, which he writes down while he's on that island of Patmos, and that has become the last book in your Bible. That's become the book of Revelation. Here's what John says about his experience writing this book. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and God's kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And it is that loud voice that then gives him this vision that he writes down that becomes the book of Revelation. But what I want you to notice is who it is that John is writing to. John is writing to other Christians who are suffering. Remember, the first century was an incredibly dangerous time to be a Christian. It was illegal. Many Christians were killed for their faith. So John is writing to them. And here's what he says. He says, I'm a companion in your suffering. And not only that, but I know we're suffering, but I have chosen patient endurance. Why? Because he says that is ours in Jesus. He knows that he is near to Jesus. And because he is near to Jesus, he can endure through the worst of things. If that is not a sign of maturity, I don't know what is. I don't think he would have chosen this early in his life, but he's grown into someone who was patiently enduring because of his confidence in Christ. We too are learning from these early disciples to say, how can I walk this road of discipleship today? So here's what I think we can learn from John. He never stopped growing closer to Jesus. Not a day of his life. He continued to mature step by step by step. So if we want to emulate anything from John's life, it should be this commitment to maturity. Don't stay just the same as you are today, but keep progressing, keep pursuing, keep growing in your faith, just like John. Amen. Let us pray together. God, we need you in this, because this doesn't happen because of our own willpower. It doesn't happen because we want it bad enough. It happens because we are near to you. Christ, you are leading us in this life, and we get the choice to follow. Won't you empower us and encourage us to take whatever that next step is for us in our road of discipleship? 
God, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for every person who is here today. We are studying your word together, and we are seeking to apply it to our lives. So won't you bring to the minds of each of us individually a way that we can apply John's path of discipleship to our lives today? Amen. If you would like more information about Unity Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at www.unitypres.org or visit us on Facebook. This is the Unity Presbyterian Church Podcast. Have a great week.